there, we began to take a look at what is a very serious topic for those of you who work for somebody who is not a very good boss. And uh, as we get into this, one of the questions that came up over and over again was what makes a good leader? What makes a good boss? And before we go too much further, I think we need to realize that a title or a lack of a title on a business card is not what determines whether or not you're a leader. In fact, some of you can test to the fact that uh, there are men and women in your firms that are leaders through title and uh, that the title is absent. And there are others who uh, can attest to the fact that you've got people in your company who have the titles and have the business cards and they couldn't lead a little old lady across the street with the walk sign flashing, you know what I mean? And so it's basically the bottom line of everything that we're discussing is what is a good boss or what is a good leader? And I think the best definition that I ran across as I was going through the material is that a good leader or a simple definition of a leader is one that has influence over another that prompts them to follow. One that has influence over another that prompts them to follow. Therefore, by sheer definition, every one of us to some, in some capacity is a leader. And so we'll take a look at that as we go through it. But if I were just to ask you just at random what people around you would say makes a good leader, what would it be? Good leader. Consistent. Honesty. Integrity, what? I'm sorry. Inspiring. Okay, wanting to follow him, giving some direction. Go for it. Encouraging, humble, flexible. Okay, now these are all what, what we would hope that a leader would be. Pardon me? Competent. That's always uh, just a, a, a good trait to have there as a, a tag along. <clears throat> Nothing like following somebody that doesn't know where they're going, although they sure do it well. <laughs> Um, what, uh, it, it, now that's what we would say a good leader should be. Now if you would go into a, a bookstore and read any book on leadership, here's what I found walking through the bookshelves. Most leaders have to have confidence that borders on arrogance. And that would be like the Trump autobiography, I think, would be that, that type of thing. I mean, you know, the confidence that borders on arrogance, they're always right, they're never wrong. And if you think so, you've made a mistake. Or you've got somebody who's got self-assurance or pride, kind of like, you know, I can handle it, I've done it, I've worked my way up, I've gone through the tough times, I've done it on my own. Somebody that has that type of confidence. Also, there's a, the, a little matter of somebody that has power and knows it. A couple of years ago, we were invited um, to the White House for a private tour after hours. And we were going through the White House and obviously you have to be invited to go on a private tour after hours because if you do that on your own, they shoot you. <laughs> so it's always nice to have somebody with you that wants you to be there. But um, we were going through this, uh, through this tour of the White House after it was closed, and the guy who was leading the tour for us was a, was a young man that lived out here, went to school out here, went back there at the time he was working for uh, the vice president's office, and that was George Bush. And he was giving us a tour, and he was kind of going through the whole program for us, and he was excited about the opportunity to do it, and we were excited about being there. And uh, if you've ever seen pictures of the White House where the, uh, uh, the Rose Garden is, 
the south lawn of the White House. There's the Oval Office is like off to the right. Um, the, the residential wing is over here and there's a breezeway that goes along between there and the Rose Garden sits right here. And then all the people stare through the fence across the street from the Washington Monument, you know, kind of like looking in the zoo. That's what it's kind of like. And uh, so you've got, there's the Oval Office, here's the residence, here's the breezeway. And he was beginning to tell us about all the things that were going on in the history of the Rose Garden and what took place from the, the residence to the, to the Oval Office. And I asked him a question that I've never forgot his answer for it, but I said, you know, what motivated you to come back here? What motivated you to want to work in Washington, D.C.? And as we were walking through there, he was looking out across the South Lawn. You could see the Washington Monument. It was lit up at the time. It was in the evening. And you could see all the people who were walking there that were looking through the fence and kind of pointing up to where we were standing. So I waved, kind of presidentially. <laughs> that was a good feeling. And, um, and they got excited. They took pictures. And they went home telling everybody they met the president, I'm sure. But, but uh, the, the thing that he answered that I thought was really interesting was he said, you know why I work here? He said, it's the power. You can sense it. You can feel it. And it gets in your blood. You can sense it. You can feel it and it gets in your blood. The power. Interesting. And as we were standing there, I recalled an incident that I heard Chuck Colson describe one time in one of his books he wrote. If you remember, Chuck Colson was the chief counsel to the President of the United States at the time. It was Richard Nixon. And he was standing in the very same spot that we were standing, looking out, seeing the same thing that we saw. And so it, I could identify with what was going on. And it was taking place during working hours, so everybody knew who they were and they knew what was going on. So it was even a little bit of, uh, there was something more to it than just what we saw. But as they were standing in the same place, and if you've ever been to Washington, DC and you've ever gone on the White House tour, you probably remember being in a line that's about three hours long, kind of like, like a Disneyland e-coupon ride used to be, where you'd just be in line for two hours. And they wrap you around the outside and, they, and it runs down, I think that's Constitution Avenue that's on the south side of the White House. And they wrap you down there and you line up all along the fence. And so you're lining up along the fence and there's hundreds and thousands of people who are waiting to take the tour. There's the Washington Monument in the background. There's the people that are waiting to get in there. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of things going on. And Chuck Colson and Richard Nixon were standing in the same spot, looking across the South Lawn, looking at people staring at them through the fence, seeing the crowds that were waiting to get in, seeing the crowds that were standing up by the Washington Monument, and just looking at all that was going on around them. And here's what Chuck Colson said, and he picks up the account at that place. He said, Nixon was musing about what people wanted in leaders. He slowed a moment, looking into the distance across the South Lawn, and said, the people really want a leader a little bigger than themselves, don't they, Chuck? He says, at the time, I agreed. Nixon goes on. He says, I mean, someone like de Gaulle. There's a certain aloofness, a power that's exuded by great men that people feel and want to follow. Says Chuck Colson at the time agreed, but later he would discover, as would the entire world, that there was a tremendous fallacy in such thinking. And it was fact they discovered that such pride would ultimately lead to their destruction and ultimately to their downfall. One man went on to put it this way: he said, "Power destroys relationships. Lifelong friends can turn into mortal enemies the moment the vice presidency of a company is up for stake. Climb, push, shove is the language of power. Nothing cuts us off from each other like power." Power's ability to destroy human relationships is written across the face of humanity. Interesting. To some degree, as we wrestle with what makes a good leader, many of us would believe that a good leader 
is one who exudes that type of aloofness, that certain degree of confidence, and more importantly, that power that they can influence other people. So as we stop to think about the people who are in our lives, who are over us, and I'd rather hit a little more personal, and that is if you are in a leadership type of position and you've got influence over someone else, I want you to be open to listen to what God says constitutes a great leader and not necessarily all the things that you assume would constitute a great leader and that you hear around you and that maybe even the bookstores are pushing today because God's got a whole different program on what it takes to lead people in a godly way. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. Because Solomon, as a leader, as one of the greatest CEOs that ever walked the face of the earth, knew what it meant to lead people the right way. And he also knew what it meant to lead people the wrong way, too. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8, as he outlines five qualities of a good leader. We'll pick it up at verse 1. Solomon writes, Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, What are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him what will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war. And evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. Let's ask God to bless our time. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity just to look into your word, to see what you say a godly leader is, and not to fall into the traps of the world around us who are trying to push us in a different direction and leading people. Father, help us to be sensitive to what you have to say. If there's areas in our life that are not pleasing to you, that don't conform to what you're telling us today, give us the strength and the boldness and, uh, and the obedience to do right before you. And we just thank you that you never ask us to do anything that you haven't given us the ability to do through the power of your Holy Spirit. And also that you haven't laid out as an example in your own life that we can look at as a model and a role to what it means to be a good leader. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we got together, we took a look at the first two qualities that Solomon laid out that were qualities of good leadership. And if you remember, the first one was found in verse 1 in Ecclesiastes 8.1. The question was, who knows, who is like the wise man and knows the interpretation of the matter? And so what Solomon was saying is that, you know what, it takes somebody, a good leader is one who understands the reason why things are done. We have got to get to the point in our lives where we can challenge one another to always ask the question, why? Why are you doing it that way? Why is it being done this way? Why have we started to do it that way? What, you know, what's the history behind it? One of the saddest things around us as far as taking it out of the, of the business sector, and let's put it into what would otherwise be called a religious community, is that there are many people who go along with church traditions for years and years and years, and when they start to challenge the tradition and say, why are we doing it? The answer is simple, because that's the way we've always done it. As if somehow, if that's the way you've always done it, makes it right. You could have always been doing something wrong. 
The question that we've got to ask ourselves, and there are people who are trapped in religious systems all around us who are afraid to ask the question, why? The exciting thing about what God tells us is, hey, ask the question, why? Because the truth will set you free. There's no hidden agendas in God's program. You can continue to ask why, 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 and he'll can tell you, continue to show you this is why, this is why, this is why. And that's a great freedom that's involved in knowing why. Man, isn't it? I mean, stop and think about people who are going through the motions of believing what they believe because they're afraid to ask the question why. And when they ask the question why, they say because that's the way it is, as if somehow there's going to be some freedom in hearing that answer. One of the things, going back to a business sector that we've got to be careful of, is that there are many leaders who are excited about what they're doing, and oftentimes they run faster than they think. And you've probably seen people who are like that. They're very enterprising individuals who always got, always got ideas going, are always running with an idea, and oftentimes they get in trouble because they run faster with the idea than they do with the thinking process to analyze everything and to break it all out. If you're in a leadership position, what Solomon is encouraging you to do is to stop and think. Leaders get paid to think. Leaders get paid to think. And when a leader stops thinking, they stop leading. Because a leader who will do what others need to do and will not delegate is not a leader at all. You've got to be able to say, look, here's what we're doing, and even take the time to do it. I know one guy who takes one day a month, one day a month, and all he does is think. Now, I mean, that's not the only day he thinks. Now, you know, some of you are going, well, I, I do that, I do that. I save it all one day, that's all. But he takes one complete day. He blocks out everything else in his schedule, and that's all he does. It's just he thinks. And he writes down ideas. He writes down problems that need to be addressed. He puts it all down on paper, and then he attacks it with a plan of action. See, that's what Solomon said. Hey, who's like this wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? Who knows the reasons why? There's nobody like that person. There are very few people in our world who have the wisdom of God that can see clearly through a matter, a clear mind. The second thing is he saw a cheerful disposition. He says, a man's wisdom illumines him and causes a stern face to beam. Many of us as leaders go around with a stern face all the time as if there's nothing to be cheerful about. Nobody, and if you're an intolerant type of boss, no one ever does what you want done the way you want, done, want it done. So what you do is you walk around with a pruned face and you're never happy about anything. No one can ever please you. And so the question and the challenge that I have for you, if you're intolerant, why don't you loosen up a little bit and realize there are people who are around you who would love to see an attaboy every now and then, a thank you for a good job, like to see you smile a little bit at the work that they do. And if you're a mother, your kids would probably like it. And if you're a spouse, your spouse would probably like to see it. And it goes into every arena of life. But just stop for a moment and let God's wisdom shine through you and loosen you up a little bit. Man, I meet people who are so uptight that when they blink, they squeak. I mean, you stop and think about some of the people that you run into, it's unbelievable. Loosen up a little bit. Number three, and one that all of us can learn something about. Look at verse two and four. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Now, let's go both ways with this. There is a time as an employee where you must have discretion. You see what he's saying? 
and you know what? Sometimes, if you are a good employee, I think ultimately it'll make your employer a better boss. You follow me? See, there's a lot of responsibility if you're not in a leadership position as an employee. God says in Colossians to do everything heartily as unto the Lord. Knowing that it's for the Lord you work, and not just trying to please men, but everything that we do, we're, we do out of excellence because of the God that we serve. One of the problems that employees have is if you're working with a stern boss who rarely smiles and never gives you an attaboy, is that somehow we begin to rationalize and justify our actions to where we don't have to work hard anymore because the guy I work for doesn't appreciate it. And so somehow I'm off the hook. God says, oh, no, you're not. You do your work heartily as unto me because you're not working for me and you're not working for them anyway. Indirectly, I'm using them to provide for your physical needs here on earth, but you work for me. And you be excellent at what you do. One of the, the worst raps that I ever heard that Christians take is that Christians have no intensity in what they do. And one of the biggest raps in, in athletics is that the Christian athlete doesn't have the intensity that it takes to be excellent in what they do. And that's nonsense. It's nonsense for a person who understands that God requires excellence of them in everything that they do. If you're working, you be the best at whatever it is you can be because it's a testimony before people around you that Christians can do a good job, that Christians can have intensity, and that Christians are probably and should be the best employees in a company. And it gets me sick, frankly, when I hear stories about Christians who are the worst employees that they have to work with. And that they're the ones that take advantage of the system. And that they're the ones that act like they're not accountable before people. And I wish I could just grab them sometimes and say, you ought to read your Bible once in a while because you're a terrible testimony to the people who work with you. Be good at what you do. Be good at what you do. Now, and also be cautious of what you say as an employee. But look at verse 4. The word of the king is authoritative. Now, who's going to challenge him and say, what are you doing? Let me just flip this thing around a little bit and just nail you right where you're at if you're a boss. You better be cautious in how you use your mouth. Communication is a key in any, in, in any business, in any relationship that we have. You've got to be careful at what you're saying to people who work for you. You better think it through. You better think about the consequences. You better think about the promises that you're about to make. Because one of the greatest morale killers that I've known in business are working for people, working for individuals who are your boss, who make you a promise and never keep it. I'll bet you right now that we could sit down and I'll ask you a question. How many people in here have been promised something from the people they work for and they have yet to fulfill that promise? Just raise your hand. And, 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 how, and, and how long has it been going on? Often for a long time. See, there's nothing that will kill morale quicker than the tone in which you say something to somebody who re reports to you and what you say to them as far as the promises that you make. Go back a second to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. See, Solomon's already addressed this once, but it's a great time and a place to bring it up. And that is that we are held responsible for everything that we say. We are held responsible for everything that we say. If you're in a leadership position and you make a promise to somebody, do you realize that God is holding you responsible to fulfill that promise? I wonder how many of us as Christians, our lives are screwed up because we go around glibly making promises to people and never keep them. 
How many of you have made a promise to someone that you haven't kept? Huh? You know what's great about it? Do you know what it was? Do you know what it was? How many of you made a promise to someone you haven't kept and you know it as you're sitting here you haven't done it? How many? Raise your hand. You know what's wonderful? It's bothering you, isn't it? Is it bothering you? I hope it's bothering you. Gee whiz. If it isn't right now, it's going to in a second because watch this. Look at verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they're doing evil. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. I am convinced of this one fact, and that is that if you and I make promises to someone and we don't keep them, we don't understand that that promise is going to be fulfilled and carried out by the hands of God, one way or the other. And he's going to take you down. That's what it says. And this point Solomon's making is this. It's not that you need to fear the other person of what they think or what they'll say or they'll wrap you bad and they'll go around saying, yeah, he made me another promise he didn't keep it. <laughs> That's one of the consequences that you ruin your, your, your testimony before people is ruined. Your reputation is, is slandered by it. And, uh, but the, other, the biggest problem is this. God holds you responsible for it. You see what he says? Don't sin. Verse 6. Don't let your speech cause you to sin. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands. Best news I can think of right now for everybody to raise their hands that I've made promises to people and I haven't kept them. You know the greatest news is? You can go and you can keep them and you can make them right today. Is that wonderful news or what? That's the great news about the truth of the Word of God. Is that when His Spirit convicts you of an error in your life, of something that you're not pleasing Him in, then he says to you, hey man, why don't you go and just make it right? Why don't you do that? And if you discipline yourself, then I won't have to step in and discipline you for, for you. But see, that's why it says in Hebrews, it's a terrifying thing, thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because I know one thing in my life, I'd rather discipline myself than have God step in and do it right. Uh, oh, I, oh, I made so many promises? I'll go fulfill that promise. Yes, I'll do that today. I'll make a commitment to do it. And if you make a commitment to do it, uh, we already know you're not real good at your word anyway. So chances are that you probably are making a deal with God that you're not going to keep anyway. And you just keep going down the spiral and you're just going to have to get disciplined somewhere along the line. But the bottom line is that God, God holds you responsible for it. And so Solomon, in the wisdom of a leader, he says, you know what I found in my life? Nothing kills morale quicker and cooperation around my office than making promises to people that I don't keep. And so what I've just come to the conclusion is, if I'm going to make a promise, I'm going to pray about it ahead of time, I'm going to check into all the facts, I'm going to look into it, and then once I make a promise, then I'm going to fulfill it, and it doesn't matter what the cost is, because the cost of fulfilling my promise to another person is always cheaper than what the price I'm going to have to pay if God steps in and disciplines me for being disobedient. Do you follow that? Pretty simple. 
But think about it. Think about your office and what a mess it is because someone goes around making promises that they never keep. When do you believe anything? And you know why? Why do, people, why do bosses do that? Why do you make promises to your spouse or your kids or, or to other people? Why do you make promises to them? Get them off your back. Right? Get off the hook, man. Oh, hey, race? Yeah, well, uh, you know what? January 1st. We'll take care of that. It's July, right? So you know for the next six months that, you know, they're thinking January 1st. Then what happens? January 1st. Oh, man, you know, things are really tough around here. Oh, man, I don't know. It just doesn't look like it's going to work out. Uh, review? Yeah, we'll review you in 90 days. 90 days, we'll do it. 90 days, 120 days, 180 days go by. The guy's working there thinking, man, you know what? I was due for a review in 90 days. I'm not being reviewed. I wonder what the deal is. I wonder what the problem is. Hey, the problem is the guy who told you that was a liar. <laughs> that's what the problem was. Don't try to read too much into it because that's all that it comes down to. You see, and, and, the, and, and, I, you know, and I'm just trying to encourage us as God's people who want to do things God's way to do it different and be obedient to God. If you make a promise, keep it. If you can't fulfill the promise that you feel like making to buy time, don't make it. And you're going to have people who are going to be more loyal to you are going to cooperate more with you because at least you don't sell them a bill of goods that you never deliver. Things are tough, things are tough. You can't give a raise, you can't give a raise. If it means they've got to go out and look for another job, then they've got to go out and look for another job because they've got to be responsible for their own individual family and we can't be selfishly using people to make our life easier. It's tough though, isn't it? It's not easy stuff. But you know what's amazing is what seems difficult if we are obedient and we do what God says to do, <laughs> the outcome's always better than what we think we're doing is going to work. We end up with all the problems and the hang-ups over all of it and we don't understand why. Bottom line is because we're not careful about how with the promises we make to people. Then he jumps on and says we need concise judgment. Look at chapter 8 again. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, he who keeps the royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him what will happen? One of the realities of the word of God is that if you're in a leadership position, you're only there because God put you there. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says this, For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exultation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. The only reason that you're in a leadership position is because God has chosen to put you there to test you to see whether or not you're going to be obedient to Him or not. That's the only reason. The only reason you're there. God put you where you're at. Now the problem is that somehow you think you got there on your own. Too bad. It's not true. See, and, and he's talking about concise judgment. You know, he says, you got to think it through. If you're in a leadership position and somebody comes to you with a problem and you got people around you all the time, it's like, I'm telling on you kind of people. You know who I mean? You know, there's always somebody in an office who is letting you know everything that's going on with everybody else. And it's kind of like, you almost, you see them coming and you picture one of your smallest children. And, and, and it's the first thing, I'm telling on you. And, and you're going to go, oh, great, here they come again. Now who are they telling on? And so you sit down, and he says that a godly leader will have concise judgment. They'll listen, they'll check into the facts, they won't jump to conclusions, they'll find out everything that's going on before they open their big mouth. Again, going back to a cautious mouth. 
check into the facts. How many times have you jumped in and said something based on what other people have told you only to find that what they told you wasn't always 100% accurate? Doesn't that just floor you? I mean, you say yes, I'm thinking about it. I mean, my kids are great. It's like, um, Ryan comes running up. Uh, Krista hit me. Oh, I'll go kill her for that because I'm sure you didn't do anything to deserve it. Not you, my only son. You know, and, and, but what's amazing, we carry that same mentality out into the business world and somebody comes running to us and they tell us something and we immediately jump and react at it as if somehow everything they tell us is gospel. Check it out. He says, check it out. A good leader has that intuition that says, hey, you know what? I don't know if everything I'm hearing here is right. Let me check into it. He said, who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble? For a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. A wise leader knows the right time to address an issue and the wrong time to address it. A wise leader can walk into a business meeting and kind of feel and sense what's going on in the meeting and know this isn't the time to bring this one up. And let me just throw it out, a wise employee knows that as well. Let's just throw it out a step further. A wise person knows it as well. If you're dealing in any kind of relationship, you know when it's not a good time to tell your wife what you want to tell her, but you know it's not the right time to do it. And the way you discover that is do it two or three times the wrong way. <laughs> and, uh, and so hopefully you begin to pick up on it. But you have to discover the right time. A wise leader knows the right time, knows the right place, knows the right procedure to go about it, and does it the way, and, and actually the course of least resistance. There's no sense in causing people to be resistant to you. People are going to be, want to be resistant to you anyway. And so you need to understand the proper timing. And that's what he has to say in verses 5 through 7. And then the one quality that he throws out that I'd like to just spend a week on is a controlled spirit. A controlled spirit. Look at verse 8. He says, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war and evil will not to practice it. A controlled spirit. One of the things that was thrown out was a humble spirit. In simple terms, let me just make this as blunt as possible. See, I don't care who you are. I don't care what position you're in. I don't care how much money you have, what kind of car you drive, what your bank account is. I don't care what your title says. I don't care about any of those things because, you know what? You're still just a man or a woman. That's all you are. That's all you ever be. You will never be God. Plain and simple. And if that doesn't smack you upside your head and the little kingdom that you think you built around you, then I don't know if you're brain dead or what. Because what I read, as far as my God's concerned, my God is a jealous God, and my God wants all the credit, He wants all the glory, and He wants all the praise, because He's the one that does everything anyway. See, so I don't care where you're at and who you think you are. The only reason you're there is because God put you there. Now, you may not believe that. You may think you worked hard. You may think you have all the degrees. You may think you made the right decisions at the right time and that you're pretty sharp. And the reason you believe that is because you want to believe that. And because there are people around you who brown nose in their way into making you think that's true. <laughs> and uh, that's the way it is. And so you begin, to, you begin to believe your own press clippings. But the reality of all of it is when no one else is around and you don't have to put on the show for everybody, you begin to realize that guess what? 
you don't even know how you got where you're at. And that's a lot, a lot of times that's the truth. I talk to guys on a regular basis who are in a position that God's put them there. And you know, the hardest thing for them to understand, and, and, and uh, many of them are professional athletes, and here's basically the way the conversation goes. Say, hey, do you know guys who are better than you in college? Oh, man, you better believe it. Do you know guys who are better than you in high school? Yeah. Did they ever get scholarships to college? No, man, they need to get scholarships. Why not? Hey, I don't know. You're in the pros now. You know guys that were better than you in college, even made uh, you know, all-conference, all-American, all this, all that, and uh, didn't even get drafted. You know guys like that? Yeah, there's all kinds of guys like that. You know guys that were a lot better than you? They were first-round draft choices that aren't even playing anymore, and it's only two years after they've been drafted? Yeah, I know a lot of guys like that. Well, let me ask you a question. Why are you here? And you know what? If they're honest with themselves, they don't have an answer to it. So you know what? I don't have a clue. Say, good. Well, let me tell you why you're here. Because God put you here. God put you here for His purpose and for His reason. And the quicker that you understand that, the quicker you'll loosen up and not try to hold that which you never earned to begin with and fight to keep it. Because if God put you there, then you're going to be there. And if God doesn't want you there, then you're not going to be there. And there's nothing you're going to do that's going to change it. If you're the CEO of a major corporation and God's placed you there, then you don't need to compromise the Word of God to stay there because that's not how you got there to begin with. And if it is, you're not going to last because God lifts one up and takes down another. You are, the best news for everybody here listening is, you are where God wants you to be if you haven't compromised to get there. And if you have and you know God and you know Him in a personal way through Jesus Christ, then His Holy Spirit's driving you crazy because you got your way through compromise and you know it's not going to last. And there is no peace of mind that goes to a person who's disobedient to the Word of God. You got there, and you shouldn't be there, and you know it, and you're waiting for the other shoe to drop, and it's going to. That's some comfort, isn't it? Huh? Now, let's assume for a minute not everybody's in that position. That you're there, you don't know why you're there, you're trying to believe what people are telling you because you deserve to be there, but the truth of the matter is that God puts you there. You know what's nice about it? If God puts you there, then He's going to protect you there. And if he wants you there, he's going to keep you there. And there isn't anything that anybody around you is going to do to change it. Great example, read Daniel chapter 6. God put Daniel where he was, and everybody didn't want him there, and they tried to do everything they could to get rid of him, and there's one thing that they forgot. Daniel plus God was the majority in that situation. And you plus God is a majority no matter where you're at. If you are where God wants you to be, and you don't even know how you got there, and just praise the Lord, give Him the credit, give Him the glory. And the wonderful thing is when somebody says, man, how'd you get in this position? Just tell them, I don't have a clue. All I know is this. God's blessed me. He's put me here. And I'm going to do everything that I can to glorify Him and praise Him in the position I'm in as long as I'm in it. Hey, there's an idea, huh? Just a thought. How many of you have given God praise or glory for the position you're in recently? Yeah? Man, you know what? Every hand in the room should go up. What's it going to take to start to understand what God wants of our life? What's it going to take? How many of you walked away embarrassed when somebody's asked you that question? Because you said, gee, why have you been married 15 years? Oh, just because I'm a great guy. <laughs> That's all I can come up with. How about you? Hey, you know why? It's a miracle. Well, I mean, you don't stop at that point. You roll on from there. You just explain why it's a miracle. 
and how God's done all the work and how He's put you where you're at and He's held it all together. And the only times that we struggle are the times where we selfishly want to go against the will of God. And that as long as we're obedient to Him, He keeps it all together and it's a great position to be in. There's a lot of freedom. There's a lot of peace that goes along with it. Hey, man, why are you in the business you're in? Why has your business grown like it has? And you got a choice to stand up and give praise and glory to God or to weasel out and to take the credit yourself. And I'll guarantee you, if you've come to know Christ, that when you walk away, you're going to feel about one inch tall. And if not, then you're not sensitive to the Spirit of God who's telling you what you need to do. I talked to a guy the other day. said a friend came up to him and said, Man, he was one of these big biker dudes. came up to me. He was one of these born-again guys. He started asking me if I ever asked Jesus in my heart. He said, Can you believe that? The guy I was talking to is a Christian. And he just kind of went, yeah, well, whatever. And they kept going doing what they were doing. Came to me three days later. He said, and he told me a story. You know why he told me? Because he said he got back in the car and he broke down into tears. He said, I was so embarrassed. I was so disappointed in myself that I didn't have the courage and the confidence that it took to use that obvious opportunity to give God the praise and the glory for what he's doing in my life. And it was great because he said, you know what? Would you spend some time with me and will you work with me so that I can read the situation better, have discernment, and use that type of question just in a short way tell people what Jesus Christ means to me? Man, I'll tell you what, that's exciting because we've all been there and we've probably been there this week. But you know what's great to me as I read this and I look at this? I realize that we are people of influence. One of the greatest stories I'd ever heard was a story that was written about a guy whose name was Boris Kornfeld. And we'll close on this. Boris Kornfeld was a, was a Jew who lived in Russia. And for some reason, no one really knows why, maybe he slipped a tongue, maybe said something he shouldn't have said, but they threw him into a gulag and he was there to live out the rest of his life. So since he was a medical doctor, the story goes, he was, he was to keep practicing medicine and keep the slaves alive so that they could die with all the rights, right things said on the record. Dr. Kornfeld was to rewrite the records and say, quote, this person is healthy, whether or not it was true. The slave was then put back into the slave block and expected to do the work. If the slaves died of starvation out there, that was fine, but they were not allowed to die in the hospital. So slowly the physician began to see through all this misapplied politics and philosophy of life. He finally decided there must be another way. And through the influence of a fellow inmate, he heard of Jesus Christ and ultimately came to know him as his Lord and Savior. Dr. Boris Kornfeld personally received Christ into his life. He said the transformation was slow but steady and on one occasion he did surgery on the very guard who had just beaten slaves. He had a chance to tie an artery loosely so that the man could bleed to death and no one would know about it. But now that Christ lived in his life, he found himself unable to kill. He even mumbled to himself on occasions, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He says these were strange words that were coming from the lips of a Jew in a Russian prison camp. I'm sure he didn't realize what a model he was and I'm sure he didn't think very much about the cycle as far as influencing other people was concerned. And so he went on and, and he says that uh, he was so concerned that at one time he met a man and he was working with an inmate who had cancer of the intestines. The man looked like he wouldn't live. 
So Boris was so concerned for the man's faith that he leaned over and he spoke quietly to him as the patient drifted in and out of the anesthesia. He told the man about Christ and explained God's love, which was demonstrated in the Savior's death and resurrection. When the man would come to, he would tell him more. And at one point, the patient awoke, still in a groggy state. He heard a noise down the hall, and his surgeon, Dr. Kornfeld, was being brutally murdered. It says, when the patient finally did regain consciousness, he realized that it, what it meant for Dr. Kornfeld to have given his life for a cause. And the patient himself personally received Christ into his life at that time. It says, because Boris Kornfeld had a vision of the cycle, he used his influence to shape a life that did not die. But he lived on to challenge and exhort the thinking of prosperous and materialistic Western America. The patient's name was Alexander Solyanitsyn. See, he had a handle on what it meant to influence the lives of other people. And while we may pay the price with our physical life, the God of the universe lives through us and will live through those who we introduce to Jesus Christ. See, it can never be eradicated. It can never be stopped because he is who he claims to be. He is the God of this universe who came to this earth, who died for each one of us. And if we have faith and trust in that, that act alone, then we're right before God. We have a responsibility to influence the people around us. And the last thing that should be addressed is that if you're a leader, then you also have a Christ-centered life. Your greatest responsibility in the place of employment and in your place of influence, and I don't care if it's coaching a little league team or talking with your neighbors, or in the place where you work, or in your neighborhood, or wherever it is that you are, the greatest responsibility that each one of us have is to lead people to Jesus Christ. When the opportunity is there, we have to pray for the boldness of the Spirit of God, who promises that He will give us strength and power, and not a spirit of timidity, but it's to exhort the risen Savior who has changed our lives. And if you're not doing that, then you're not doing what God requires of you, and you'll never be content as a follower of Jesus Christ with your Christian walk. You'll never be content. You'll never have the joy that He promises until you do what God requires you to do. And that is to use the position you're in to give Him the praise and the glory. It's quite a challenge for all of us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, as we think about the world around us and what constitutes a good boss, it becomes so obvious that what you say is good is still good. Because by sheer definition alone, Jesus said it best. He said, why do you call me good? For only God is good. And the point is very simple. That only God alone is good. And that He is the definition of what is good. Father, we just thank you that you've been able to find for us what good is in the relationship of influencing other people. We just pray that we'll have clear minds as people of yours that know the reasons why, to be able to give an answer to the hope that lies within us. That we'd have a cheerful disposition because we could have the love and the joy and the peace that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ as we've come to a right relationship with you. Knowing that in a world full of bitterness and anger and, and, and in business climates that frankly people just want to stab each other to get some elusive title or a better salary. That we're to be a light and a salt. And that we're to have a cheerful disposition knowing that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Father, I just pray also that we'd have a, a cautious mouth. 
that we take seriously the things that we say to one another, the promises that we make, knowing that you're the one who is our judge, that you're the one that will discipline us if we don't follow through with what we said. And Father, give us concise judgment to be able to listen through and discern a situation, to be able to have the wisdom of Solomon to see through things that the majority of people don't see, and to be able to come to godly conclusions because of it. Our Father, we just thank you for that, and we just also would just pray one last thing, and that you would each give us a controlled spirit, a humble spirit before you, knowing that you're the one who's placed us where we're at, and that you're the one that deserves all the praise and the glory, so that we can use it as a, as a, a means, as a platform, to lead people to Jesus Christ. There's no greater joy in life than coming to that place where you have peace with the God who made us. There's no money, there are no bonuses, there are no positions in life that will ever fill that void that we have in coming to know you. And Lord, one day we'll be accountable to you for the people that you've put in our influence, whether they're co-workers or neighbors or family or friends. Those people, we have a responsibility to share the greatest thing that ever happened to each one of us that have come to know Christ. And we just pray for the boldness, pray for the discernment, and more importantly, that we pray for the sensitivity and love in how to share that great message. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.